Hello and welcome back to the Security Metrics Podcast. I'm Jen Stone. I'm a principal security analyst at Security Metrics. Today on the podcast, we have Vince Romney with us. Vince, I am so excited to have you here with us today. Will you please introduce yourself to everyone so they know who you are and where you come from? Sure. And I'm excited to be here too, Jen. It's good to catch up with you after several years of not working with you. So <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. I come from a, uh, a military background as far as uh, my cybersecurity environment goes. And uh, but prior to that, I have been involved in technology since uh, 1996. So I, I've been in technology most of my working life. And uh, as such, I've been able to see a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different domains of security, uh, including banking and fintech, uh, general retail, uh, you know, and then through the military, uh, both DOD and then DOD contracting. So I had a lot of good opportunities in that. But in the military, uh, I was one of the first guys to stand up in a cyber warfare cell. Uh, back in 2005, uh, cyber warfare was not really a discipline. It was something that information operation flights in the Air Force or uh, you know, S6 groups in the Army, those guys all had some kind of interaction with the uh, opposing nation states, shall we say, uh, on, on that network domain, but we didn't have truly what was called a cyber warfare environment. Um, and so for us, we got tasked in our information operations flight to stand up a cyber warfare cell. And it turns out we were the first in the National Guard to do that uh, as a AGR group, uh, Active Guard and Reserve group, but uh, also among the first few in the military in general. And so we had a lot of unique opportunities as a result of that to work side by side with uh, different agencies, three other agencies in their operations to kind of learn from them and teach them what we, you know, what little we knew and uh, and evolve that whole program through its formative years into where it, uh, when I finally retired in 2013, uh, you know, it was a professionalized uh, environment. We had full doctrine, we had training uh, funnels feeding us to come forth Air Force, and it was a whole different environment. It was great to go through that that formative and very uh, nascent environment and now you know take that experience and apply it in the uh, in the retail uh, or you know general enterprise world has been really entertaining that's super interesting that's and that's a particular interest of mine I'd love to learn more about that um, at some point maybe have you back on and talk specifically about those experiences um, today I asked you to come on and talk about cloud security because that's something that you're applying now in, in your in your civilian life um, and yep. there's a lot of people, um, our listeners, who care a lot about cloud security and would like to kind of hear how other people are doing it. Yeah, cloud security is one of those things that I think people look at the cloud as a solution, uh, which it's a platform, obviously, and as such has some things that help you build solutions. But it in and of itself is not a solution. And one of the things that uh, I get asked often is, what's the difference between cloud security and an on-prem security environment? And I always bring up the old uh, 2014 uh, Code Spaces attack, if you remember that. Uh, code Spaces was a, you know, basically an online code repo, uh, similar to GitHub and that type of thing. But they they also hosted, you know, four websites and 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 all of that as well. And what turned out happening was somebody hacked in to Code Spaces backend. Uh, gained root privilege and uh, ended up after a little bit of uh, you know, network warfare, so to speak, as they tried to uh, eliminate the threat. Uh, they found out they'd been breached and they tried to shut things down and switch passwords out. 
Well, this guy had set up a root account, and so he just deleted the entire account. So, you know, that company went away in one click. Right. They, they just disappeared because the entire cloud account, the AWS account, was gone. It had been deleted. And so if you think of that comparison with an on-prem environment, you can't delete a whole bunch of, you know, hardware. You can't take the company out in one fell swoop. It takes more work to shut down an entire on-prem system. So from, from that perspective, cloud is different simply in that the threat surface is potentially more volatile. You can do more damage in the cloud than you can on-prem in many cases. That said, now you look at cloud security from the perspective of what's available to me as a security professional to use in the way of tool sets and systems to secure my environment. And now I have an entire group like AWS or Azure helping support me with great tools. So I have more at my disposal in the cloud, uh, you know, literally at my fingertips to help secure my environment. But I also have an environment that if I do the wrong things, can disappear with a single click. And, and you know, you brought up a good point about a lot of people are kind of confused about what cloud actually is. You know, how, why, why people choose the cloud. So why do you think, um, for example, you've got security people, you've got um, implementation people, you've got people who have to maintain that environment versus a, uh, an on-prem, and then you've got management who, who ultimately makes the decisions on how the money is made, how, how uh, or how, how the money is spent. How do you... Um, how do you see differences in, in how they view it and how those those decisions are made to eventually go to a, a cloud-based environment? Well, I think I've, I've got some interesting stories to kind of tell through that. I, one of my friends is the uh, cloud security architect for Liberty Mutual, and uh, they are largely cloud now. Uh, several years ago, an edict was given from their C staff, uh, we're going to the cloud. And uh, as, as uh, Craig Olson is his name, he's a great guy. I should introduce you and have him come on the podcast as well at some point. But Craig said, okay, what, you know, what is this? Why are we doing this? What's going on? But he was tasked with securing the cloud. And, you know, this is a $46 billion insurance company. And so he, uh, you know, he looked at that as a rather daunting task and he became a cloud expert as a result. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think a lot of us become steeped in cloud simply because we get an edict. Uh, you know, I, I joined my current position in Newskin as their enterprise security architect as a result of them making the decision to go cloud. And at the time I was working with a company who was cloud native. So they had started their company around the cloud. So you have two different perspectives. One, they saw the opportunity of the cloud. And again, the, the leadership said, we need to be nimble. We need to be able to scale. We need to be able to, uh, you know, grow and, and, and be elastic in our infrastructure capability because we have ebb and flow in our sales cycle. And we need to be able to accommodate that flow when it happens, but then not pay for it when it's not happening. So that company uh, started from ground zero as a cloud company. So all of their systems were cloud native. Uh, in the case of both uh, Liberty Mutual and Newskin, it was a lift and shift. It was, we're going to take our stuff that we have on-prem and we're going to plug all of that into a cloud environment. Uh -huh. And that comes with a whole different set of challenges. Yes. <laughs> uh, as one might imagine. And uh, 
you know, as anyone that has lived through a lift and shift will tell you, it's probably not the best way to do it, but it's the way some people do it. Yeah. And I think it comes from that perspective difference of management. Management sees, they view another company, they've got friends, say, at another company in the uh, management staff that says, hey, we're cloud native and it's awesome. You know, we do all these things and, and we can we can hit, uh, you know, a, a 10X or a 20X or a 100X on our sales and not even feel it. Uh, in in a, in a just a quick you know like a, a promotion and you can't do that uh, on app. prem it's it'll just yeah. it'll destroy your systems yeah it's pressure because you can't put new you can't rack up a whole bunch of new boxes sure. in five seconds you yeah. know but you can start spinning up new EC2s in that kind of time frame sure and uh, so the the management sees that potential and they want to go there what they so they're looking at end state. Mm-hmm. Implementers have to look at what actually gets you to the end state. Right. And as implementers, we have to look at it and say, all right, end state is everything cloud native, everything functioning, you know, in, in serverless, say, so that we're not even using the kind of archaic architecture of an EC2 with an RDS and you know, all the, the system set up. So it's kind of traditional stack. Mm-hmm. If you want it to be cloud native, you want to be running off lambdas. You know, or you have to run off containerized environments and you want to do that so that you're literally able to be essentially fully ephemeral across your entire stack. Yeah. And that means you're taking advantage of what the cloud has to offer. Mm-hmm. But and the management never sees it that way from day one unless they're actually technical people. Right. And that's what you're right. Yeah. So I, I see that as well. So I, one of the best parts of my job is I get to go evaluate people's environments for security and they could be anything from a single server in a, in their closet to up to um, fully cloud native where, as you said, using Lambda or using um, the Google cloud platform, a services only um, environment. Um, But where I see people really struggle with um, implementation and um, leveraging what's, what's available there and security is when they try to take, what they have on prem and imitate that in the cloud. So all of the right. all of the security challenges that they have on prem are maintained again in the cloud rather than eliminating um, a, a massive uh, like layer of those security vulnerabilities, uh, the potential security issues there by going to a services based architecture in the cloud. But but as you say, if you're not familiar with that, if you're uncomfortable, and so I always. Uh, now I have to time out because I always promise the listeners that we're not going to take it too technical and too geeky. So here's uh, here's some basics. Uh, it's and uh, it's and it's super. Uh, I mean, it's not super easy, and I'm not going to lie to you. It is not super easy, but the concepts are: you can get this. You have servers and you have workstations that you use in your environment, and you you say, okay, now I want to go to the cloud to leverage all of the things that you were talking about, being able to to quickly adapt to changing situations. Um, there's ways to do it so that what looks like your your server client architecture in, in your um, office environment looks exactly the same in the cloud environment. And you'll be comfortable with that, but it's the wrong way to do it. And so if you can kind of let go of the old architecture that you're familiar with and really take advantage of the way the new architecture works in AWS or in Azure or in GCP, then you're going to... to, to event you're going to it's going to take you less time 
it's going to be less maintenance overall and you're going to have less security issues, but it does take training and it's exhausting training at first because your brain's like, oh, this is a different, if it's a different way of looking at how architecture works. Yeah, I, I mean, I, are you seeing I, that I as well? It, yeah, absolutely. I liken it to when, when you get that tasking that you're going to move to the cloud, basically plan on having to keep up with a full-time college load in study while you actually apply that same information you're studying in real time in your working environment. Absolutely. And it's, it's that kind of workload from a, uh, an ingestion of knowledge standpoint. And it's important it's, it's for managers to know that because if they give somebody a task and they don't know, oh, also you're going to school full-time to learn how yeah. to do this, and then you wonder how come you're not getting this done or how come you're slow or how come you're grumpy because you're getting no sleep. <laughs> yeah, and there's, that's a huge difference uh, in management perspective versus implementers perspective. Right. Again, you know, the management goes, well, hey, it's it's in the cloud. It should be done. And and I think the other part that happens from an assumptive basis with uh, with management is they hear the promise of things like, uh, you know, security is code, infrastructure is code, uh, automation, you know, security automation, all of that stuff that is certainly there in the cloud for you to use and implement, but it is not automatically there. Right. That's the part that gets your, your uh, conflict between management and implementers is the management thinks, oh, it's already there. No, capacity to implement it is there. Right. But doing it is not there. And a lot of and people don't know. Management. Yeah, they don't even know where to look. To If you don't know some basics about security at all levels of technology, you don't even know that there's a module you should be looking for or a configuration yeah. that you should check. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, what, about, I think in... in uh, in AWS, at least, I think there's 150 pages of configurations. Yeah. So, you know, you, to say you should know all of those <laughs> automatically is incredibly assumptive and impossible. Yeah. And, you know, even for someone who's been working in it, the concept of I'm going to do task A and something as simple as, say, stand up an EC2 instance. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, you can just go in and stand one up. But there's several pages of configuration that go with that process. And best practices are one thing, but you can also just get it done. Right. And best practices are obviously the things we want to be following. Mm -hmm. But when you've got, you know, uh, management or you know, project managers standing over your head saying, get it done, get it done, get it done. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And so it's that concept that in the cloud, we have these cool capabilities and we can build controls around them. But you have to build the control right. that tells you, oh, that EC2 deployed in a open to the public status. And you don't want that. Therefore, <laughs> we're going to back that out or at least alert you. Right. Because it, it's easy to um, it's easy to skip the steps and leave yourself wide open. Right. And, you know, we see that in the news a lot. You know, oh, another S3 bucket left open to the world. Uh, and and it's it's fairly consistent. And. You know, it's not that a, a public S3 bucket is a bad thing. It just depends on what's inside it, right? Exactly. And what capabilities exist within that uh, you know, content. If there's, you know, the capacity to take that content and use it nefariously, great. Or if that's got an application in it, you know, uh -huh. you're using a static app inside an S3 bucket. Uh, okay, if that application has no functionality and it's just there for viewing, 
that's one thing. But if that has a form field in it, or it has, you know, it's it serves up data, now it's a different thing. You can start manipulating that code because it's public. And you can start gaining access to that and looking at it. So so how um as you've got along that path, how have you been able to basically bake security into the process of implementation? So one of the things that we we learned is that as a security team, you pretty much have to assume you're always behind because you are. Uh, <laughs> developers can work way faster on building than you can keep up with controlling. Yes. And so you have to start looking at that automation concept. And initially there's, you know, configuration alerts and things like that through some of the incumbent uh, you know, you've got guard duty and, and cloud trail and cloud watch that you can aggregate in and start uh, actually firing off uh, building lambdas that fire off based on conditions that are met and send an alert out and say, hey, you now have something that's public that may or may not need to be public. Or right. you have a configuration that uh, is uh, somebody set something to, you know, 0 .0 .0 .0, you know slide zero. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, it works, but that's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> so when you see those kind of things show up, you go, oh, okay, we need to build this control around it. It says, if I see that, not only alert me, but actually stop it from happening, mm -hmm. actually block that from going to production. And as we started going down that road, we recognized that uh, there's probably not uh, enough manpower to be constantly reacting to these things and, you know, uh, and, and um, when I say, Every time I build a Lambda, I've got to build another one or change configurations every time a new situation comes up. And I want to push that workload out to the actual developers. Uh -huh. I want them to be able to write their own rules. Right. And and then so that it fits them. You know, I can check those to make sure they're not writing crazy. But if they're actually creating their own uh, security and then the guardrail just sits there and they can bounce off that guardrail all the way down through the, uh, the completion to production, then they're good and, and security no longer has to work with it. And so uh, one of the guys that I work with, uh, his name is Taylor Wilson, he's as sharp a, a uh, security engineer as I've ever met. Just really, really sharp guy. So he looked at um, an open source tool that uh, he's called Cloud Custodian and said, okay, how can I take this concept take this open source code and work with our team and manipulate this into something that is much easier for a developer to go in and just write a rule uh -huh. that says, okay, I need this rule to say, you know, if A happens, stop it. But if A plus B happens, it's okay. Those type of things. So conditional sets and the rules can just be written and none of the underpinnings that you know, because you can't just write a rule and expect it to happen. You have to have all of the code that supports that rule, all of the interaction that grabs something off the event bridge and says, "Oh, here's this event now validated against the whitelist." Okay, is it in the whitelist? No. If it's not in the whitelist, then kill it. But then notify. You know, you have to write all those rules. This way, there's a single rule set, and all of the other supporting stuff comes in. And so, taking that that concept, Taylor built this whole project with our team, and we now have what we call security bots. Oh, nice. And security bot just allows uh, anyone to write the rule. The rule gets applied using that same set of uh, validations and, and you know, consumes it off EventBridge. And then EventBridge is where we capture everything that happens from you know, guard duty and cloud trail. So. Okay, great. So, and so so, uh, so was it easy buy-in from the developers then? Uh, it's, it's getting there. 
especially once we really had it working and we had a full kind of, hey, everyone come see our demo. We had a lunch and learn and said, everybody come look at this. Uh, it was really kind of fascinating to see that shift of, wow, that is cool. Yeah. That, that makes my job as a developer much easier. Nice. And when you, when you can you know, buy in like that, and we learned that arguably from Craig and his experience at Liberty Mutual. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's so important to share information as security professionals is, yeah. you know, you can, you raise the tide, all boats raise with it. Right. And, you know, so we, we were trying to elevate that in that process. And I've seen more sharing of information and, and sharing of, of um, knowledge um, during COVID, which we're all experiencing right now, than I have yeah. before. One of the, um, but, but old attitudes, you know, carry on. I have found in the security world, people are very um, hesitant to, to share information and even more hesitant to ask questions. Almost like, oh, I'm expected to know everything. If I ask a question, maybe it'll, it'll reveal me as, as not capable or something. Um, have you seen that? You are hitting on a real strong nail there that we all have this. Because we have a background in security, People call us experts. Uh-huh. And I always shudder at that because, you know, even back when I was just in technology, someone would go, oh, you're an IT expert. And they go, no, <laughs> I have certain silos that I know a lot about, mm-hmm. you know, domains that I understand a lot about. But ask me about this over there. I, I, my brother, as an example, called me the other day and says, hey, I've got a question about uh, this this uh, process in Adobe Photoshop. I think she said, Stan, I have no, no idea. idea. <laughs> you know, that is the most complicated application on the planet, and I've never even tried to use it. Yeah. So, yeah, no clue. But people make that assumption. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens in security, and maybe even more so, because it's a domain that's even now still relatively new mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a, a standpoint of a focused profession. Right. And you know, it, it was only it, 2005 we stood up in the military. Right. And it, it's, it's difficult because um, in order to be a security professional and say, and basically what we're doing is looking at other people's work and telling them where it sucks. Right? <laughs> and so in order to do that, you have to have a level of, of ego or self-confidence that allows you to step up and say those things out loud. Right? So first of all, you have to have kind of that personality, but then to be really good at it, you have to be able to drop that ego and accept that you don't know. Oh, let me give you an example. This was really hard for me because I had to stop in the middle of an assessment. I was working with a group that was doing a services based AWS architecture. It was different from anything I had seen before. Right. So, so red flag number one to me is shut up and listen. Right. And the guy that was talking to me was arguing with me about something I was asking him to do in terms of, of um, monitoring and alerting. And he said, you don't understand. That's not how it works. And I said, I did not blow up because that's what I wanted to do. But I went, can you tell me more? And he said, well, you know, I used to be the guy that helped AWS customers with their security questions. He was an essay in that field. And he, and he had done that for four or five years, and then decided to move to um, uh, a single company and work there for, he just wanted a little change, right? So he knew his stuff. And so when I was able to go, all right, 
I'm going to listen to what you have to tell me. And he spent a day and a half educating me on not just what they were doing and why, but how it, how it worked in the larger scheme of things in the AWS um, architectural concepts. So I was able to, to learn so much about how does security work in something that I was unfamiliar with, but it was hard. I'm not going to lie. I'm I, accepting that and, and breathing and go, letting it go and saying, yep, you're right. I don't know your stuff. Tell me more. And I think a lot think of security it, professionals feel like that. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things that, uh, again, going back to that comment that you're basically a college student for the rest of your life yeah. if you choose to get into security. Yes. Because there's always more to learn and you need to be learning. Um, but you'll get left-hand vectors. Yesterday I was in a meeting reviewing the app, a, a mobile app for security, going through the code review. And uh, they were using some data points that potentially had some HIPAA compliance. Oh, okay. You know, um, and, and I had to admit, I said, guys, I don't know enough about HIPAA to know if this is a concern, but I know enough to know I should go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, need, I need to go research this and find out what the answer is. HIPAA is not an easy research topic. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, and I, I never want to become a HIPAA expert, but I want to be able to know that that's a concern. And I think that's, you know, when you look at all the certifications and stuff out there in, in, uh, in security and they're, you know, they're proliferating, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, I think the value that something like a CISSP has is merely in providing you enough information to know what you need to research and what you need to look up. 100% agree with you. Yeah, you don't come out of there as a security expert. I'm sorry. The CISSP is nothing but a number uh, assigned to you since you passed the test. But if you take it for what it is, you know how to ask questions now. Yeah. I mean, I'm proud of mine. Because it was a hard test, but hard test. do I apply it? N only as you said, you know, understanding it gives you a basis to know where to look for to to do additional research. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Every every day learning a new thing. So, um, so uh, you spoke a little bit about some of the tools that you're familiar with. Um, as you said, there are the cloud incumbent tools are there because they work in certain situations, but there's also open source tools that have, that bring some value. Where, where do you find a balance in those different tools? It's really interesting because I look at our current stack and, and I talk to friends that have their stuff going in. And it's very interesting because first off, depending on the size of company, they, they find value in, if they've got the budget, just buy something that already works. Mm -hmm. So if you have a use case that doesn't really fit within uh, the, the incumbent services, mm -hmm. uh, similar to like our automation platform that we build, right? Okay, that doesn't really exist. Uh, you have to build it. Uh -huh. uh, but are there you know, opportunities to buy something? Well, as we move towards a more serverless foundation, so breaking down monolithic apps that were lifted and shifted, yep. turning them into serverless, containerized workloads, et cetera. Um, well, you know, yeah, we could go out and for our service mesh, get Istio and take that in and start building that out. We could use open, open policy agent and, you know, and, and put the envoys on all our containers and, and, and start building it out that way. But that takes a lot of development. Time. Mm -hmm. Or you can go out and buy something right. that already exists. You know, you can go buy uh, the Prisma Cloud stack, which is like PureSec and RevLock and uh, Twist, Twist Lock and all that. 
Uh, you can go get uh, Aqua. You know, there's all these tool sets out there for Kubernetes uh, mm-hmm. orchestration layer management. And, and great, you know, see where's your budget? But I think there's two things that come down to where are your resources? Right. And what is your use case? So if your resources are cash and your use case requires something that's not incumbent or endemic in the, in, in the cloud, great, and just buy it. Sure. You know? But understand, you still have to have a human or many, depending on the, on the tool, to actually manage that. Right. I mean, I, I love when people go out and buy solutions and then find out that they're going to have shelfware for the next three years on that contract because they don't have the manpower to actually get the tool functional. Right. Uh, I, I often... Um try and take those things into account. People ask me all the time, what tool should I use? I don't know. <laughs> but um, I mean, we can figure it out a lot of times. So like you said, yeah. if they don't have, there was a, a great little, um, uh, well, you know, it's a little, they're a pretty, pretty massive fast food re- a franchisee that, that I um, worked with. And they had a, a couple of guys who were really sharp. For some reason, they had hired a couple of really sharp, hungry, young, fairly inexperienced IT guys who wanted to learn more. They wanted to, and one of them was especially interested in in security. But they they didn't have enough work to really keep them busy, but they didn't have the budget to buy any tools for what they needed. (laughs) They they were going through, I believe it was a PCI assessment. And so um, the one guy said, well, what should we do for for monitoring and alerting? And I said, well... um, your guy here wants to learn more about security. Why don't you give him OSEC um, and, and let him go? I would never say that to someone who had no time and a lot of money, right? And so, so looking at what is the tool, yeah, what's your budget? What's your manpower? What's your internal appetite for learning and figuring out something new? For sure. And, and that's a, you know, I think most of us that went into technology as a profession in one way or another, are there because we like to learn new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a reason you get drawn into that because it's not something that you're going to learn once and then just rehash over and over and over again. Yeah. It yeah. evolves way too quickly. So you're always learning and that's a great thing. Uh, but like you said, some companies, they've got the pockets and they keep a lean staff right. and they just say, great, buy the tool. Mm-hmm. And if we need to hire a human to manage it, great, we'll hire a human. Mm-hmm. But they're good on that. It's just kind of an interesting uh, thing because I've seen many different approaches, and you in your position have probably seen you know dozens more than I have. Of every you, every company has a unique kind of resource uh, to risk profile, mm-hmm. and so they look at their risk, and then they look at their resources, and they want to apply resources to risk. But it's very unique to each company how they do that and what kind of relationship or ratio that has. Right. Right. Yeah. And talking about risk, I don't think anyone in security um, can really do their job well if they don't understand how how risk works. Um, And because you can end up applying all of the security to all of the problems because you want zero risk, um, which makes no sense. And then all of a sudden your bottom line is just out that you can't make any money because all you're doing is chasing risk. But um, and and, you know, Getting back to your military military training, which I really do want to do like a whole podcast on that, but um, uh, going from military to the security domain to understanding risk, how does that give you some different insight into um, how to evaluate security security solutions and and based on risk? Well, I, I think the military, and, and again, I speak 
the military is a very broad thing. It's like IT, right? Yeah. You know, you can be a, a cook, you can be a, a special operations operator and, and everything in between. You know, it, there's just so much uh, differential in any one person's military experience. And, and I had a great and very diverse military career. I enjoyed the heck out of it. And, and I probably had way more fun than I should have. And it's evident in, you know, my, my career progression. But, <laughs> you know, I, I took advantage of a lot of cool, fun opportunities. Uh, and, and I'm glad I did. But when, it, when you look at how we are trained, just fundamentally, uh, the whole training process uh, starts with your plan. What is your training plan? And you, there's this model of what are the risks in what we're about to do? And whether that's a training plan or an actual operational exercise where you're going out into the field and doing you know, X, one of the first things you do is evaluate the risks. What are those things? And can they, can they be controlled? So the mindset is one of, hey, you know, suspect everything, assume there is risk everywhere, and then pare it down by validating that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, work alongside uh, some operators and provide, uh, you know, some, some feedback to those guys. And it was interesting to hear their perspectives of what we do in cyber versus what they do on the ground. Right. And so that was kind of fun to have those conversations and, and talk about you know, what shaping the battlefield meant to them mm -hmm. uh, versus what it means to us, but how those two actually have a corresponding location in that if I'm shaping the battlefield from a cyber standpoint in support of a ground operation, mm -hmm. that those two things have to dovetail perfectly. Oh, interesting. So that, so that the cyber side or the you know the information technology side of that battle space is prepared in a way that fully supports what the ground operator needs to do. Well, and I think in the, in that situation, you know, you're looking at um, uh, people could die risks, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, so how how did like you said, you look at all the risks and then you pare them down. How do you pare them down uh, in a way that that I, I'm not sure how to ask the question that feels acceptable right. based on, on potential yeah. death. And you, you actually, you know, you hit it on the head when you said potential death, you know, you, you start ranking your risks based on impact if realized. And we do the same thing in business, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if this risk was realized, what would that actually mean to the company? And so the same thing happens in the military. We're just looking at it through lenses of, you know, potentially uh, injury or death can occur if you screw this up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I, when I was, uh, had a, a stint with DAE systems working on, uh, as the, the software security analyst for uh, the ground-based strategic deterrent, which is the replacement for the Minuteman missile. And uh, so that was about as critical a set of software you can be looking at, right? Mm -hmm. You know, from, from the standpoint of what that represents, mm -hmm. It's the nuclear defense of the nation. Right. So it has to have a risk profile around what you can call acceptable that's very different than the risk profile around a retail application that sells a product online. Right. <laughs> right. And, and uh, you know, so when, when you're looking at that, you take very seriously any risk that has the potential to... Uh, degrade the security around 
a nuclear surety program. Mm -hmm. And you know, we had one situation where we uh, we identified something that was actually a mandate from the congressional committee in charge of this, and said that cannot happen. It simply can't happen. If if that mandate is realized, is built into our system, we're screwed. And we had to go back through and push that back up the chain through the O7 to the actual congressional committee. We had to take out that congressional committee and say, we can't do that. And here's why. And it was interesting to see that process because you think you, you would kind of assume that a congressional committee in charge of the upgrade of a nuclear surety program like that would have a clue. Um, but they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I wonder if it's, if it's because of, of training. From what I've seen in my in my work, most people are not trained in risk management. They're, they're not training trained in risk analysis, and they don't understand um, how risk mitigation works. And so, and it's not something that we teach in school, right? And right. and yeah. so, I wonder if maybe um, uh, people in charge of making decisions, if they don't have the right kind of training in risk management, are maybe hampered in, in that rulemaking. I absolutely can agree with that because if, if you're looking at things through purely a functionality standpoint and not trying to apply risk to those functionalities, you're, you're just making decisions completely blind to their impact. Right. And, uh, you know, we, I see that on a fairly regular basis in corporate, but the upside is my background in the military. Again, I think this is where military people are, are uniquely, positioned if they wish to jump into security to do so mm-hmm. is because you push back up chain your risk and you say, all right, mm-hmm. are we willing to accept this risk? And, and, you know, you, we used to, and I've actually moved this into our corporate world. We used to have a thing called a quad and you know, the military is probably familiar with it, but it basically has four sections. It's a, a standard sheet of paper, four sections, turns into a PowerPoint slide when you're actually presenting it. But, okay. uh, and it, it merely says, what is the decision to be made? What's the background on that decision? What are the risks associated with the decision? What are the artifacts associated with that? And, and, and it's made for delivery to, you know, a 07 or an 06 uh, who's looking at this to make a decision for their environment. And you're basically telling them, if you make this decision, this is what it means. So if you accept this, then here's the risk that goes with it. So it makes it very clear for them to make a, a decision on it. Yeah, yeah, because you're, you're, you're outlining that whole environment. Here's the scope, here's what this is, and here's the risk associated with, with saying, yes, I accept this. And, uh, and then you know, let's take it to the retail world. At that point, I'm willing to say, you know, I pass that up the chain, and the person accountable to the company says, yes, we will accept that risk. Great, I just apply compensating controls and move on. Right. Right? Yeah, you because know, my job is now defined. Sure. As a security practitioner, and that—that's one of those things that the military taught me is, hey, when when you get orders and you provide the risk assessment, when they say, "Yep, there you go, run with it," okay, now it's just up to me to provide compensating controls. Right. And this is something that so um, depending on the um, compliance that a company is trying to meet, PCI is yeah. very checkboxy. You have to do certain things. If you want to do a compensating control, it's hard, right? HIP is different yeah. from that. HIP is very risky. You start with the risks and then you, you form your program around that. So yeah. it's harder 
because you have to think more about it, that you have to take more into account, and there has to be more communication. But one of the things that, that I sometimes run into in security professionals are people who, who want to eliminate all of the risks. And, right. and, they, and they get frustrated because they're like, well, they don't understand the risks. And I'll say, well, did you explain it to them? Yes. And what did they say? They decided to accept it. I said, okay, so they did understand yeah. the risks and they got to set the risk appetite for your organization. So you need to understand what that risk appetite is and then do your work based on that. If you are still freaked out about some of these risks, fine, keep bringing them up or find a way to, to, to resolve them based on what you, your, your current mandate, right? But um, understanding who makes the decisions about what and how to communicate, that's not an easy thing. Yeah, and, and I think it's anyone that assumes they're going to remove all risk is in the wrong profession. Right. Again, security is, you know, security in its foundational piece is risk management. Right. That's what we do. We determine what level of risk uh, we're going to, you know, provide to a given environment. And, you know, zero risk, great, I know how to do that. Turn the systems off. Right. You know? <laughs> zero security risk for your data. Uh, the flip side to it is, is that you also can't conduct business. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's that balance. And in, in military operations, risk is inherent. There's, yeah. You cannot, you know, go engage an enemy without risk. Uh, it simply isn't there. How that risk gets mitigated is the art of war. Uh, legitimately, if you've yeah. ever read, uh, you know that you know, some Tzu's Art of War. I have. It's a, yeah, <laughs> see, you know, there's a lot of great principles about how to engage your enemy. Mm-hmm. Which you know, we all have uh, some common uh, cyber enemies out there that we are all fighting, right, in one way or another. And you know, yes, we are all in defensive roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's no offensive role in civilian side right now. Right. And I, I right. don't know that it's ever going to get there. But, no, it doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't seem like the right direction to take it. <laughs> you know, uh, the, and, and again, the nature of cyber is that it's a continual arms race. So even if there was offense, it would you know, just continue to scale back and forth. Sure. Yeah. We, uh, and, and, and we, we hear, we hear that all over and over again, um, that they they only need to get things right once, and we have to get things right 100 percent of the time. And and so fighting that defensive battle um, um, is it's it's exhausting. But um, there's some good people out there doing it. Yeah, and, and part of that exhausting part, I think, is mindset. If you go into security with the understanding that your job is never done, <laughs> and that you are constantly going to be engaged in the process. Uh, to me, that's what makes it fun. You know, and I that, need to be more fun. like you, Vince. That's that is such a great attitude. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a takeaway, readjust my mindset, and and have more fun with it. Yeah, I you know it's I find I can live a much more calm life. You know, our current environment with all the crazy going on uh, as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, I view it through those same eyes. I view it through the eyes of someone who says. I'm a little bit cynical about pretty much everything. Uh-huh. Um, so I view it through a, a scope of um, motivations and understanding that uh, I am not going to be able to apply my sensibilities mm-hmm. to everyone else, but I should also not assume that everyone has 
uh, shall we say, altruistic or best for everyone intentions. Sure. Have a, a couple of different courses that you're taking at any one time and be able to just work through those courses because that process is what makes this job fun. Yeah. There's always cool stuff to learn, always new stuff to apply. And, uh, you know, and you get surrounded by those same people. Right. So then the people you're working with are all of that same kind of mindset. And, and that's where it gets kind of cool. You know, I, some of the best people I've worked with in my life have been since I've jumped into cybersecurity as a full-time gig. Nice. So, you know, 2005 forward, I can, I can identify a dozen people that I just think are the best guys out there. So, best people to work with. so as a veteran, um, what do you think makes security a good job for someone who served in the military? Well, certainly all of the perspectives that you learned in the military are applicable here. Uh, you know, assuming you learned them, there's obviously people who go in the military and don't learn good things, but, uh, you know, most come out that they've spent time in the military with a unique perspective on how to view the world. And with that, I think it's very applicable to security. The discipline required to be successful in the military is exactly the same discipline you'll use in security to continue to learn, to continue to you know, move forward. And, uh, and then in the military, you're taught to state it as it is. Mm. Don't try to cloak things. Don't, you know, if you screw up, you screwed up, sir. I screwed up. This is right. what I did. You know, here it is. Uh, you take full responsibility. And in security, that's, you know, yeah, I screwed up. This is what I did wrong. Here's how we're going to fix it. That is the statement that makes, you know, everyone comfortable. And that's something that we learn in the military as a standard part of life. Yes. Excellent. I really, really appreciate that that insight. And again, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I look forward to talking to you again in the real near future. Absolutely, Jen. Thank you for having me. It's been fun to reconnect. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. I hope to see you again here on the Security Metrics Podcast. Thanks for listening. To learn more about all things security and compliance, head to securitymetrics.com. If you prefer to watch the podcast, go to securitymetrics.com slash podcast or search for us on YouTube. See you on the slopes.